and welcome to Weird on the Rocks. This is a podcast that explores the weird, unusual, strange, and unexplained, all while getting our drink on. I'm your host, Katie. Thank you, everyone, for joining me today. I know it's been quite a while since I had an episode out. I'm so sorry about that. Life has just been very busy. Started a new job, have a baby, yada, yada, yada. We're all busy, I know. But I've really missed the show, and it's really nice to be back recording today and I hope you guys really like this episode. This is one of those stories that at the time was a huge deal in the country. But if you weren't alive at the time to experience it, you have maybe never heard of this story. Today, I'm going to be discussing the Tylenol murders. This is a case that I first heard of on one of my favorite podcasts, True Crime Garage. They covered the story and I was shocked that as a true crime fan, I had never heard of it. This story made national news and without giving too much away, it really kind of changed a lot of things in this country in regards to consumer products and how we package things. So I hope you guys enjoy. You can find Weird on the Rocks on Facebook and Instagram at Weird on the Rocks podcast, Twitter at weird underscore rocks, and the website weirdontherocks.weebly.com. Please subscribe wherever you're listening now so that you always get the latest episode as soon as it's released. Today's episode is brought to you by Gold Rush Coffee Company. Roasted on the Humboldt coast of California, Gold Rush Coffee focuses on hand-selected beans from small farms around the globe to ensure premium quality for a top-down approach. From small batch roasting and blending practices to the perfectly brewed cup of coffee, Gold Rush Coffee specializes in USDA and CCOF organic certified coffees that are imported from around the world. Each week, Gold Rush Coffee roasts to order because they value freshness and seek to cut down overproduction. Visit goldrushcoffee.com to see the selection of over 30 roasts and blends that you can get delivered straight to your home or business. Or for you locals, stop by their drive through coffee shop at 2742 Broadway in Eureka. Gold Rush Coffee. No bullshit, just good coffee. Before we get into the good stuff, I want to share this week's beverage of choice. Tonight, I am drinking a delicious vodka ginger limeade. I found this ginger limeade at Target. It's from the brand Califia Farms, I think is how you say it. And as soon as I tasted it, I told my husband, this would be really good with vodka in it, which is something that I find myself saying a lot. Um, But I was right because it is. It's delicious. I haven't really been drinking hard alcohol at all lately. Uh, Lots of seltzers and wine in this house. So this is uh, hitting me pretty hard right now. (laughs) I put a shot and a half of this. Um, I'm feeling pretty good. Let's hope I can make it through this episode for you guys. (laughs) All right, well, let's get into the good stuff. Cheers, and let's get weird. On September 29, 1982, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman, who lived in the Chicago suburb of Elk Grove Village, woke up at 6.30 a.m. to get ready for school. Soon after, she began to feel sick and told her dad she thought she had the flu. 
he decided to give her some Tylenol in hopes that it would make her feel better. A few minutes after taking the Tylenol, she went into the bathroom and shut the door, and her dad heard a loud thud. He went to the door and asked if she was okay, to no response. He opened the unlocked door to find Mary unresponsive on the floor and convulsing. He called 911 and she was rushed to the hospital. Unfortunately, the doctors were not able to save Mary, who was brain dead upon arrival, and she died. An autopsy was performed because of her sudden death at such a young age, but the results did not show anything out of the ordinary for a 12-year-old girl, and they assumed that she possibly had an underlying condition that they weren't aware of. Police went to the Kellerman home to speak to her parents and hear their story of what exactly happened, as Mary was so young to die so suddenly. Her parents mentioned that they had given her Tylenol for her cold, and the paramedics actually brought the bottle to the hospital since it was the last thing she had ingested. The same day, 27-year-old postal worker Adam Janis from Arlington Heights decided to stay home from work because he was feeling under the weather and believed he was getting a cold. After spending most of the day resting, he picked up his two children from preschool and went to the store where he bought a steak for dinner, some flowers for his wife, and a bottle of Tylenol. When he returned home, he made lunch for his kids and then took two Tylenol pills. Within just a few minutes, he told his wife that he wasn't feeling well and that something was wrong. He soon collapsed and started convulsing on the kitchen floor. His wife called 911 and Adam was rushed to the hospital. Doctors were unable to save him in time and he died at the hospital. Although Adam was only 27 and in good health, they ruled his death as a heart attack. A few hours after his death, his family, including his brother, sister, wife, and parents, returned to the family home to mourn together. Being emotionally exhausted, Adam's 25-year-old brother Stanley and Stanley's 19-year-old wife Teresa both felt run down and had headaches. They both decided to take some Tylenol that they found on the kitchen counter. Soon after, Stanley passed out. The family, who had just went through the experience of losing Adam just a few hours prior, were terrified and shocked by what was happening to Stanley. And for the second time in the same day, an ambulance was called to the Janus home. While paramedics were working to revive Stanley, suddenly his wife, Teresa, also passes out. Paramedics begin simultaneously working on the husband and wife. Back at the hospital, a nurse informed the doctor who had just worked on Adam that the Janus family was coming back in with another medical emergency. The doctor assumed it was Adam's parents, who were older and had just gone through the traumatic process of losing their son. But the doctor was shocked to hear that it was Adam's younger brother and his wife, only 25 and 19 years old. Stanley and Teresa came into the hospital exhibiting identical symptoms to what Adam had been experiencing earlier that day. And soon, Stanley also died, and Teresa was put on life support. This is when doctors realized that it must have been something in the environment or something that all three people had consumed, and that they actually might have been poisoned. The hospital contacted the Rocky Mountain Poison and Drug Safety Center, who suggested that the three of them could have died from cyanide poisoning and some blood samples were sent out. During the wait for results, law enforcement talked again with the Janus family to try and get more clarification about what they possibly could have eaten or drank. Adam's wife could only remember Stanley and Teresa consuming three things at their home, peaches, coffee, and Tylenol. Officers also investigated the home looking for any evidence of poison or gas leaks, but found nothing. 
off-duty firefighter Philip Capitelli from Arlington Heights Fire Department had heard both of these calls come in on his scanner and thought that it was odd that several people from the same home would have died from such similar symptoms and so close together. Philip's mother-in-law also worked with Mary Kellerman's mom, and he had heard the news that the 12-year-old Mary died the same exact day and from the same kind of symptoms. Philip Capitelli was the first to realize that the common denominator between these deaths was Tylenol. Because Mary had been taken to a different hospital than the Janus family, Philip was able to connect the dots before the doctors or law enforcement, and he immediately contacted authorities with his realization. Police were able to collect the bottles of Tylenol from both the Kellerman and Janus homes to investigate. Upon opening them, they saw nothing out of the ordinary. The bottles and pills themselves looked normal. However, the bottles both had the same lot number, MC2880. The bottles were confiscated and brought back to the police department where the chief medical examiner also looked over the bottles and upon smelling them, noticed that both bottles faintly smelled of almonds, which is the smell of cyanide, although only about 40% of people are able to detect the scent. Several of the pills were tested and came back positive for trace amounts of cyanide. Blood samples from all the individuals came back soon after and also all showed a range of 100 to 1,000 times the lethal dose of cyanide. Around this time, a toxicologist was brought in who was able to examine the pills more closely and saw that some of the pills did look slightly bigger from the normal Tylenol pills. These bigger pills also were made up of a clumpy powder, while the normal pills were made of a finer powder. Within just a few days, the cyanide also began to eat away at the capsule exteriors, making the pills look noticeably tampered with. Cyanide is a chemical asphyxiant, and when consumed, blocks oxygen from being able to enter the red blood cells, essentially suffocating someone's veins, causing dizziness, nausea, rapid breathing, low blood pressure, and in cases of extreme exposure, convulsions, long-term lung injury, and death. While these individuals died on the same day in the suburbs of Chicago, law enforcement had no idea that others were also dying. On that very day, September 29, 1982, 27-year-old Mary Lynn Reiner from Winfield, Illinois, was being discharged from the hospital after giving birth to her fourth child. When she got home, weak and in pain from just giving birth, she took two Tylenol and immediately collapsed on the floor in convulsions. Her husband, Ed, called 911, and Mary Lynn Reiner was rushed to the hospital where she died the following morning, leaving behind four children, including her newborn baby. Just a few miles away, 31-year-old single mom Mary McFarland, who was working at the Bell Phone Center in the Yorktown Mall, began to feel a headache coming on and took two Tylenol. Within just a few minutes, she collapsed to the floor in front of her co-workers and began convulsing. She was rushed to the hospital and after spending hours in critical condition, she eventually died. That very same day, 35-year-old flight attendant Paula Prince landed at the O'Hare Airport and was staying the night in Chicago. She went to a nearby convenience store and picked up some Tylenol. Sadly, Paula was alone when she took the Tylenol, so nobody was around to call 911, and she ended up dying alone. She wasn't found for several days until she didn't show up for dinner with her family, and her sister went to her house to check on her. On the same day that Paula was found, Teresa Janice, whose husband and brother-in-law had died and she was still on life support, was taken off of life support. 
At this point, the local authorities and medical community were aware of these deaths and knew that all of the individuals had taken Tylenol. In 1982, Tylenol was the best-selling pain reliever in America, and it was considered a safe, and non-risky medication to take and was available over the counter, making it accessible to the masses. The local news began reporting of the deaths and issued warnings to the Chicago metropolitan area to throw away their Tylenol immediately. And the police even drove around issuing verbal announcements over their loudspeakers. The local authorities then had the task of alerting the state and federal government, as well as the manufacturers of Tylenol. In 1958, Johnson & Johnson bought McNeil Laboratories, which was responsible for manufacturing acetaminophen, the main ingredient in Tylenol. After acquiring the new lab, Johnson & Johnson developed the brand Tylenol and began making the pills in mass quantities beginning in the 1960s. Tylenol was the only over-the-counter pain reliever of this type at the time, allowing them to control the market, so that even when similar products began coming out, Tylenol was the most well-known and trusted pain reliever. By the early 1980s, Tylenol had an estimated 100 million customers, owning 37% of the market. And in the first three quarters of 1982, Tylenol alone was responsible for 20% of Johnson & Johnson's profits. On September 30th, a press conference was held discussing the deaths of these individuals. However, at the time, they were only considering the deaths of 12-year-old Mary Kellerman and Adam, Stanley, and Teresa Janis as deaths attributed to Tylenol. The conference was held at 8 a.m., and by 9.30, all stores in the greater Chicago area had removed Tylenol from their shelves. While some stores decided to take all of the Tylenol, others only removed the bottles with the lot number of MC2880. And soon, stores around the country followed suit by removing Tylenol from their shelves. Poison control centers began receiving thousands of calls per day with people concerned that they had recently used Tylenol, as well as being fearful of using any other pain relievers. Soon, Johnson & Johnson halted all production of Tylenol and had representatives personally visit stores and pharmacies to ensure that all bottles with lot number MC2880 were taken off the shelves. They also issued warnings to hospitals and medical treatment centers across the country to stop use of Tylenol with that lot number. And although Johnson & Johnson were adamant that the only pills tampered with were those from that lot number, the public pretty much stopped all purchasing of Tylenol overnight, dropping Johnson & Johnson's market share from 37 to 7% in just one day. As the investigation continued, it was soon discovered that Mary Lynn Reiner died after taking pills from a bottle with a lot number of 1833MB, so the recall was expanded to include that lot number as well. And by the next day, it was learned that Paula Prince died from taking pills from yet another lot number. That night, Chicago Mayor Jane Byrne held a press conference saying that nobody in the Chicago area should take any Tylenol products. And by October 5th, just a week after the first death of Mary Kellerman, Johnson & Johnson had removed 31 million bottles of Tylenol from American shelves, equivalent to $100 million worth of product. 10 million recalled bottles were tested, and 50 pills were found to contain cyanide. These 50 pills were found in eight different bottles, five of which belonged to the deceased, and the remaining three of the eight bottles were taken off of store shelves. Johnson & Johnson began rolling out advertisements warning the public against the use of Tylenol, and also issued a $100,000 reward for anyone with information about who was responsible. By October 6th, the FBI had launched a formal investigation into the tampering of these Tylenol bottles. 
Fear only began to grow as the days went on with no answer as to how the lethal cyanide got into these Tylenol bottles. People across the country continued to call into poison control centers and hospitals were flooded with people coming in convinced that they had cyanide poisoning. Chicago hospitals were hit the hardest and a doctor working one of the local call centers so they were receiving calls about Tylenol every 15 seconds for days on end. They tried to reassure people that if they were exposed to cyanide, they would exhibit symptoms almost immediately and to not worry if they had taken Tylenol in the days prior to this recall. Luckily, the efforts of the government and Johnson & Johnson were successful, as no other Tylenol-connected deaths were reported after the recall. Local and federal authorities now were able to focus on the investigation into how and why this happened. When asked about suspects, Illinois Attorney General Tyrone Fawner said in a press conference, quote, There's no single person or even a group of people that stand out against the rest at this point in time. End quote. And in an interview with him in 2019, he said, quote, We had no clue as to the motivation except for the taking of human life. It made no sense. There was no clear intended victim, but just anyone, anyone who had the misfortune of buying a bottle of Tylenol. End quote. They soon began looking into disgruntled Tylenol employees, people who had left the company under unfavorable circumstances. They also looked into the history of customer complaints and Johnson & Johnson stock transactions, looking for someone hoping to push down the value of Johnson & Johnson stock. As the investigation continued, it was ruled out that the pills were tampered with while still inside the manufacturing plant, and instead that someone laced the pills with cyanide after they had been placed on store shelves. Chicago stores were asked to send in video surveillance tapes, but at the time, that was still very rare, and no suspicious activity was recorded. In a tactic often used by police, they also publicized the dates, times, and locations of the funerals of those who had died from the cyanide poisoning, hoping that a killer might show up and be noticeable, but this led to nothing. Around this time, an unsigned letter was sent to Johnson & Johnson stating that they would repeat the poisonings if they were not wired $1 million and was complete with an account number of where the money was to be sent. The letter was sent to the FBI, who determined that it was written by a man named James Lewis, and a manhunt for him began. However, James was not located until two months later, in December of 1982, where he was seen at a New York library and was arrested. However, after a thorough investigation, it was determined that James sent the letter in order to get money from Johnson & Johnson, but that he was actually not the one responsible for the original murders. He was not in Chicago in September or October, and because of how quickly cyanide eats through the Tylenol capsules, it was determined that the individual responsible must have tampered with the pills immediately prior to them being bought and consumed. Through further investigation, it was also determined that the account number James included in his letter didn't even belong to him, and actually belonged to a man named Frederick McKayhe, who James had a personal vendetta against and wanted to frame him for the killings. James Lewis was sentenced to 20 years in prison for extortion for writing the letter and was released in 1995 after serving 13 years. Another suspect the FBI looked into was a man named Roger Arnold. Someone had reported that on October 9th, Roger was in a bar at Lincoln Park and was telling people that he was the one responsible for the Tylenol killings. He even had a Ziploc bag full of white powder telling people it was the cyanide he used. Police searched Roger's home and found several guns, but nothing else suspicious. He was held without bail and questioned by police where he told them that he actually had cyanide in his house but recently got rid of it. 
However, the police did find some connections between Roger and the murders. Mary Lynn Reiner purchased her bottle of Tylenol across the street from the mental hospital that Roger's ex-wife was a patient at and where he often visited. It was also found that Roger worked at a jewel warehouse where Mary's father worked as a truck driver. Police questioned Roger's ex-wife who said that a few months prior, Roger had given her Tylenol for a headache and that it made her sick and throw up. Police decided to search his home once again, and this time found two one-way tickets to Thailand and several crime books and manuals, including the Anarchist Cookbook and training manuals from the Department of Defense. However, these connections seemed to be the only thing tying Roger Arnold to these murders, and he was released as a person of interest. However, Roger did not forget about the person who first reported him to the police, the owner of the bar that he was at that night, a man named Marty Sinclair. One night in 1983, Roger went back to that bar with a plan to kill Marty. However, he accidentally killed a patron named John Stanisha, a father of three. Roger was sentenced to 30 years in prison and served 15. After Roger Arnold was cleared, it was years before the FBI named a new suspect in the Tylenol murders. And this individual wasn't a stranger to crime. His name... Ted Kaczynski, also known as the Unabomber. Over the span of 18 years, he was responsible for the death of three people and injured 20. Kaczynski was mainly named as a suspect because his first attack took place in Chicago and he had family still in the area. However, Kaczynski denied any involvement and there was no evidence to tie him to the murders. Again, years and years passed by with no new suspects, and apart from the families of the deceased, most people moved on from the Tylenol killings. And within a year, Johnson & Johnson had fully financially recovered from the controversy and released their new tamper-proof triple seal packaging. Tylenol also reformulated their pills and gave out heavy discounts, trying to earn back the trust of the American public. And it worked because within just a year, their stock rose 25% and they were back to the top of the market. In 1983, Congress also passed the Tylenol Bill, making it a federal crime to tamper with consumer products. And in 1989, the FDA made it a law for all consumer packaging to be tamper-proof. With yet again years of silence and no new suspects in the case, in 2009, the FBI decided to take another look at the Tylenol killings using new and improved technology. In a written statement, the FBI said, quote, This review was prompted in part by the recent 25th anniversary of this crime and the resulting publicity. Further, given the many recent advances in forensic technology, it was only natural that a second look be taken at the case and recovered evidence, end quote. However, this new investigation into this old crime found no new evidence. The Tylenol murders of 1982 also were not the only killings of this type. Several more incidences of tampered drugs have happened in the years since. In 1986, three people died from ingesting tampered gelatin capsules, and a New York woman yet again died from a cyanide-laced Tylenol pill. In Washington, Excedrin pills were laced with cyanide, killing two. And in 1984, Procter & Gamble released a new pain medication called Incaprin, which soon after its debut was involved in a cyanide poisoning that turned out to be a hoax. But the brand never recovered, and Incaprin was discontinued permanently. And in 1991 in Washington, two people died from taking cyanide-laced Sudafed. 
Also in 1991, the families of the deceased came together to sue Johnson & Johnson for not having tamper-proof packaging at the time of the Tylenol murders. They claimed that before the killings, Johnson & Johnson had received over 300 complaints nationwide about packages of Tylenol being tampered with and argued that the deaths of their loved ones could have been avoided. Instead of going to court, Johnson & Johnson settled with the families for an undisclosed amount. As of today, nobody has ever been convicted of the Tylenol murders. And the question still remains, was the perpetrator of these killings truly out to kill innocent strangers? Or did they have a personal or financial vendetta against Johnson & Johnson? It seems that we might not ever know. Okay, well, that's going to be it for today's episode. I'm curious to know if you guys were familiar with this case or if this episode is your first time hearing of it. For something so huge at the time that affected, you know, not only the people who died, but people across the country, uh, I'm surprised it isn't a more well-known true crime case. It doesn't, you know, have its own Netflix show yet. (laughs) Uh, I actually asked my parents if they remembered this happening in the news because they would have been in their late 20s at the time, but they said they didn't remember it. And that definitely could have been because, you know, we're all the way in California. So they weren't close to the actual murders themselves. But I was surprised they didn't even remember it happening or the recall of Tylenol pills or anything. As someone who was born after the tamper-proof packaging became a law, it's wild to me that this was not always a thing. My entire life, I've only had pill bottles that, you know, had the safety seals on top, the child-proof packaging that's all hard to open. And it's crazy that before this, you could just go into a store and drop something into a pill bottle without the person purchasing it being able to tell. Now we'd be able to tell, you know, the the seal on the top would be gone, the little um, plastic things around it. Like there's just, there's just so much that nowadays you'd be able to definitely tell if someone opened your pill bottle before you bought it. I watched a YouTube video about this case and there was some guy saying that now even, you know, milk jugs have tamper proof packaging on it. And that was really because of Tylenol and this whole thing that happened. It's kind of one of those cases where it's obviously extremely tragic and horrible that these innocent people died. But if they hadn't, more people in the long run might have died eventually if these things weren't changed. It's also interesting to think about how the three people in the Janus family died within just a day of one another, which really made doctors and law enforcement pay attention to what was going on and kind of triggered to tell them like something is wrong. Um, But had that not happened, had the deaths been more spaced out, these deaths probably would not have been tied back to Tylenol for a long time and probably would have just seemed uh, random. So the three people in the same family dying so close together is kind of what triggered to the police that something probably criminal was going on. Something wasn't right. It's definitely scary to think about something like this happening, though, because even with the tamper-proof packaging that we have now, I'm sure there's still somehow a way for something like this to happen again. And it's especially scary when you're a parent and you give your child Tylenol or ibuprofen for pain. Um, You know, I've given my 13-month-old Tylenol for teething and for fevers, and I just can't imagine if something happened to her because of medicine I chose to give her. I really feel awful for the father of 12-year-old Mary Kellerman because she didn't take it on her own like the other adults. He gave it to her. He wanted her to feel better. And I just cannot imagine the amount of guilt that man 
must have had and probably still has, honestly. The death of Mary Lynn Reiner is also so sad, having died just a few days after giving birth. As as a newish mom myself, I remember those first few days postpartum, how much pain you're in, how hormonal and emotional you are, and you're just feeling like shit, honestly. <laughs> and she just wanted to take some medicine, make herself feel better, maybe try and get some sleep. And to die from that and to leave her newborn child and other children without their mother, it is just heartbreaking to think about that. And all of these deaths are just so horrible to think about because taking pain medication is something probably every single one of you listening has done before. It is such a normal part of our life. It's not something that someone should have to die from or be fearful of. So I truly hope that the tamper-proof packaging we have now is good enough for something like this never to happen again on this large scale. As far as the killer or killers and their motive behind these attacks, I really don't know what I think. I mean, even if it was someone who wanted to financially ruin Johnson & Johnson or had a personal vendetta against them for losing a job or whatever, there are other things they could have done to hurt that company without including murdering innocent people. So I think that no matter what, the person or persons responsible for this is a psychopath or a sociopath and someone who has zero regard for human life. But as always, I want to hear what you guys think. Do you think that this was a financially motivated crime or perhaps a, an emotionally motivated crime? Or do you think this was just some psycho who wanted to kill innocent strangers? Let me know your thoughts. You can find the show on Facebook and Instagram at Weird on the Rocks podcast, Twitter at Weird underscore Rocks, and the website weirdontherocks.weebly.com. Thank you so much for joining me today and for your continued support of the show. I appreciate every single one of you. And until next time, cheers and stay weird. Stay weird.